I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our study on the Beatitudes. We come this day to the third of the Beatitudes, Blessed are the Gentle. I want to begin reading in verse 1, and I think that you'll find that this will be a very helpful message for your life. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the Word of God reads, When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. He opened His mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Here we are. Blessed are the gentle. Your translation may read, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The story is told of a thief who conspired a very ingenious burglary. He broke into a department store at night and itemized all of the expensive items that were in the jewelry section. He saw on the glass counters expensive watches, priceless diamond rings, costly necklaces and bracelets, and earrings and the like. But instead of just reaching in and taking them and putting them in a bag and leaving with them, he did something very shrewd. He exchanged the price tags. On the expensive watches, he placed the price tag of lower-end watches. On the diamond necklaces, he put the price tag of imitation jewelry. And on the cheaper items, he put the expensive price tags. And then the thief in the middle of the night left without anything in his bag. Sure enough, he was there when the store opened the next morning and he went in and with a smile on his face, he was warmly welcomed by the sales force who could be hardly helpful enough to him to bring out all of these costly items and one by one by one, he purchased a $6,000 watch for $70. He bought a $10,000 necklace for Virtually nothing. He acquired a $10,000 diamond ring for a mere song. And he walked out in broad daylight. They opened the door for him and helped him out as he pulled off one of the most remarkable burglaries in history. All because he changed the price tags. This is something of what has happened, not only in the world, but in the church today. The devil has broken into the minds of people and he has rearranged the price tags. All that is truly valuable in the kingdom of God, virtues like humility, submission, lowliness of heart, Cheap price tags have been put on these costly virtues. And then at the same time, on other items not worth hardly anything, 
they have been marked up. Self-fulfillment, self-esteem, self-worth. All these price tags have been switched, inverted. And so virtues like gentleness are now in the bargain basement. And cheap imitations like self-assertion, self-determination, self-satisfaction, self-importance, self-regard. All of these have been moved into the front showroom windows and the price marked up and people are coming in and buying them by the droves. Sad to say, these cheap imitations are selling like pancakes. And if you really want to have a busting out television ministry, then just begin to sell these cheap trinkets. All this is the devil's ingenious plan to steal from the lives of believers what is most valuable and replace it with junk that has no value at all. And this is why we so desperately need to be reminded of what Jesus taught in the Beatitudes. Because in these verses, Jesus puts the price tags correctly. He puts them in right order. That which is truly valuable are declared to be so. Here our Lord assigns true spiritual riches to us with the proper price. The fact is, to have these abundant riches that are laid out for us at the end of each of these Beatitudes, and here's what's being offered to us. The kingdom of heaven, comfort, inheriting the earth, satisfaction, mercy, seeing God, being called sons of God, reward in heaven with the prophets. The cost is laid out for us in being poor in spirit, in mourning in being gentle, in hungering and thirsting for righteousness, etc., etc. Today, I want us to see the third beatitude. And I want us to see the price tag on what is truly valuable in the eyes of God, in the estimate of Christ, and in the economy of the kingdom of God, what is truly valuable. I want us to see what it is what, what blessing it will bring to our lives, and also what it will require of us. And so, I want us to look at this virtue of meekness. In my New American Standard, it is translated gentle. It is in the margin as meek, and I want to use the word meek. There, there really isn't a good English word that, that really best can, or, or that fully conveys the idea. Certainly one would be best. And I want to use the older word, meek, which the ESV remarkably has recovered. So, as we lay out this message, looking exclusively at verse 5, I want you to note first the meaning of meekness. This is where we would begin. What, What do you mean, blessed are the meek? Blessed are the gentle. And the place to begin, really, is what our Lord does not mean. 
When we hear the word meek, we most immediately assume weak. Meekness, we think, is weakness. Uh, Meekness is being a coward. Uh, Being scared of your own shadow. Something that is less than a man. When we hear the word meek, we think someone who lacks convictions, who is spineless. Uh, there's a flabbiness about his, uh, his, his, the direction of his life. Well, that is not what the word means. It does not mean a, a spirit of compromise. It is not a person who is tolerant of everything. It is not someone who rolls over and, and plays dead. He is not a peace at any price kind of person. Numbers 12, verse 3, tells us that Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. And that during the wilderness wanderings as he's leading millions of Jewish brethren in their direction towards the promised land. And he is being confronted with challenges on every side. He has been given one of the most demanding tasks that anyone has ever assumed, and Moses was anything but a roll-over-and-play-dead kind of leader. He was strong. He was virile. He was aggressive. He was a man's man. And yet, it is said he was the meekest man who ever lived, certainly apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does this word meek mean? Well, to draw it out of the, its meaning out of the extra-biblical language, meaning how the word was used just in classical Greek at this time, uh, the word was used to describe something that is mild or soft or gentle. Now, the word was used for a, a soft breeze or a soothing medicine. But most particularly, the word was used of a wild colt or an untamed horse that had been birthed just out in the wild with an unbridled spirit that was broken by a trainer and brought under the control of a rider. Now, the legs were not broken. The horse could still run with all of its speed and fury. It was the will that was broken. And what the word came to mean is power under control. Power under the direction of a higher authority. To make a horse meant to bring the horse into submission to the reins of the rider. To make a horse meant that it was broken in, that it was harnessed, and now under the direction and control of a master. That is what the word meek means. It is the Greek word praus, P-R-A-U-S. P-R-A-U-S. It is a rare word. It is only used one other time in the New Testament. First Peter 3, verse 4. And when this word is applied to a man or a woman, I think the, the meaning now is obvious because it is painted upon the canvas of our mind. It means for a man or a woman who has lived previously to do my own thing. I'll go my own way. I'll do what I want to do. 
when I want to do it, how I want to do it. Nobody is going to tell me what to do. I am the master of my own ship. I will lead my own life. For that person to be meeked means to be to have their will broken. And to come to a place of humility and to lower themselves before the Lord and to place their lives under the authority of Jesus Christ. And for the rest of one's life to pursue only what God would have me to do in my life. It means to surrender one's life to Christ and to come under His Lordship. It does not mean weakness, but instead power under control. One study Bible says, quote, The meek are gentle. Those who do not assert themselves over others in order to further their own agendas in their own strength, but trust God to direct the outcome of events. To be meek before the Lord means to have our will broken, our spirit harnessed, our soul subdued by repentance and lowering ourselves before God. Really the meaning of this word is flowing out of Psalm 37. Psalm 37 verse 11 is the Old Testament text that our Lord surely had in mind as He now states this third beatitude. Psalm 37 is one of my very favorite uh, psalms in the Psalter. It is a wisdom psalm. And the beatitudes are stated very much like wisdom poetry in the Old Testament. There are great contrasts. They are stated in pithy, short, little uh, statements, just like blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's, a, it's a study in contrast. And so Psalm 37, verse 11, we read, The humble will inherit the land. Sounds like, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Here, the synonym for meek, as derived out of, I think, the root text, is humility. This is the meaning of the word meekness. It is to lower oneself and to come under the authority of a master, the master, Jesus Christ, where you are no longer a wild colt, where you are no longer a bucking stallion. You now are bridled. You now are power under authority. This is the meaning. Now I want you to note, second, the marks. The marks of meekness, and as we think about the marks of meekness, there are two that immediately come to mind. And as I was reading, after I wrote this heading, I was reading Thomas Watson's book on the Beatitudes, and I turned to this very Beatitude, and he begins his chapter 
with these very same two marks. So I think I'm on the mark to give you these two marks. And here are the two marks of meekness. One is toward myself and the other is toward God. The first mark of meekness is toward myself and it is self-denial. And this can be expressed in any number of synonyms. Meekness or self-denial is marked by self-renunciation, self-humiliation, self-restraint. Meekness as it relates to myself is marked by, listen to this, death to self. That I have come to the point in my life where I die to self, I am dead to self, to self-ambitions, to self-dreams, to self-control, to self-hopes. I have finally come to the end of self. And be assured, the Lord never begins until we come to the end of ourself. Jesus put it this way later in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 24. This is true meekness as it relates to myself. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. You know what a cross was for? It was an instrument of crucifixion. It was an instrument of death. And Jesus did not say, we take up His cross. He said, we take up our cross. There is a cross for each and every one of us, and it is a, a picture of the death to self that must come in each and every one of our lives. This is the first mark of meekness, that we die to self, that we deny ourselves, We have come to the end of ourselves. No one enters the kingdom of God without coming to this point. You can walk forward down aisles from here to China, but until you come to the end of yourself, there is no entrance into the kingdom of heaven. No one is meek who is doing their own thing. No one is meek who is promoting their own agenda. That is the first mark of meekness. He who has ears to hear, let him hear this day. The second mark of meekness is now towards God. First to myself, self-denial and death to self. There, There is no way to plow around that boulder. It is there for every one of us here today. And then towards God, surrender and submission. This too can be expressed in a number of synonyms. Meekness is marked as I come to the end of myself. I then surrender my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I present myself as a living and holy sacrifice to God. I have taken hands off of even my own life. I relinquish the control of my life entirely to God. Meekness is yielding. It is 
resigning. It is abandoning my life to the Lord. It is transferring the control of my life to the Lord. It is now following after Christ. Not the world, not my own path and ideas for my life, but now Christ. And Matthew 16.24 goes on to say that in the very same verse. And we have both of these aspects of meekness in this text. Let me read it again. If anyone, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's not enough just to deny yourself. It's not enough just to neuter yourself and sit by idly on the sidelines a mere spectator of Christianity. No, there must be the active, moving out, taking deliberate, intentional steps of faith to follow after Christ. It is the unconditional surrender of my life to God and to Christ. And no one is meek who is doing their own thing. No one is meek who is pursuing their own will. The only one who is truly meek is the one who has died to self and pursuing the Lord's will. Has this come about in your life? Has this reality come home to your heart? This goes way beyond the outward veneer of religion. This goes far deeper than mere churchianity. This is down into the very reality of what it is to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. We are those who have died to self and who are following after Christ with a surrendered life. This leads now, third, the model. The model of meekness. And there are any number of models in the Bible of men and women who are meek that I could set before you. But because of time, I want to get in the elevator and go to the penthouse. I want to go all the way to the top. I don't want to waste around with uh, secondary illustrations. I want to play the trump card. I want to put before you the supreme model and example of this meekness. And it is the one of whom the entire Bible presents to us as Savior and Lord. It is none other than Jesus Christ Himself and we are to be like our Lord. We are to walk as He walked. We are to live as He lived. And so the greatest example is Christ. I want to set before you some passages that the authority of Scripture would set this model before your eyes. I know that you want to be like Christ. You would not be at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church if there was any other example or model that you desire to have in front of your life in ministry than Christ Himself. Let's begin with Matthew 11, verse 29. Jesus said, Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. That really is the personification of His incarnation. That really is the, the sum and substance of His coming into this world 
as the servant of Jehovah to do the will and the work of God, he was gentle and humble in heart. If we are to be like Jesus Christ, it begins on the inside. It begins deep within the heart. It necessitates that we be gentle and humble of heart. Jesus did not come to do His own thing. He came to do the will of the Father. Verses, John 5, verse 30. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. Nothing on my own initiative. I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus understood in His incarnation there was self-renunciation, self-humiliation, self-denial, even for the perfect, impeccable Savior and surrender of His life to the will of God. John 6, verse 30 is a slam-dunk verse. Jesus said, "...for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me." For Jesus to be meek and gentle and humble in heart meant that there was a death to His own assertion and following after the will of the Father. That was the struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane, was it not? When He said, Father, Matthew 26, 39, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. In His humanity, there was this struggle. Yet, not as I will, but as You will. And there was the intentional assertion that He would not do His own will, but the will of the Father. Paul beautifully describes this in Philippians 2, verse 7, that Jesus emptied Himself. Now, He did not empty Himself of His deity. He remained fully God in human flesh, right? He was no less God when He was here upon the earth and when He was in heaven. When it says that Jesus emptied Himself, it means that He denied Himself the use of His divine prerogatives. As He approached the cross, He said, I could call upon legions of angels to come to My aid. When they came to arrest Him, He merely said, I am, and the entire Roman cohort fell backwards. No, our Lord intentionally humbled Himself to the will of God and He said, Father, the hour has come. Jesus emptied Himself, Philippians 2.7. Hear the rest of this. Taking the form of a bondservant. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is what it is to be meek. That, it is, that is what it is to be humble and gentle. It is to humble oneself, to take the form of a bondservant, and to do not one's own will, but the will of God. Two other verses. Matthew 20, verse 28. 
The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. That, my friend, is meekness. And 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 is the final verse. Our Lord Jesus Christ was rich. Yet for your sake, He became poor. And the richness of His sovereignty, He voluntarily chose to set that aside. He emptied Himself and assumed the poverty of a bondservant to be under the will of the Father. That is exactly what it means for you and me to be meek. It means that we never say, well, this is what I'm going to do. It means to always say, I will not pursue my own will. I will pursue only the will of the Father. This is the model of meekness. And everyone who is Christ-like, there is this lowering of themselves. Not stiffening of their back and setting of their jaw and elevating of themselves and no, I'm going to do this no matter what. That is the most unmeek person there is on the planet. The one who is meek is like the Lord Jesus and pursues in great lowliness only what the Father directs. It was seen in Abraham. It was seen in Joseph. It was seen in Moses, in David, in Stephen, in Peter, in Paul, in John, not perfectly, but progressively, it was being brought out in their lives. This is the model of meekness. I point you to the greatest example that there has ever been, the Lord Jesus Christ. I call upon all of us to follow in His steps. Number four, the means. The means to meekness. I trust at this point you are desirous of being meek. I trust at this point you are saying, yes, I want to be like my Savior. Yes, I want to be a true citizen in the kingdom of heaven. The question is, how? And I think the context gives us yet more insight into the means to meekness? The answer is found in the context. And I want to say again, this is the third, not the first, beatitude. There is a logical sequence and progression in these beatitudes. These are stepping stones. And a man or a woman can never be meek until the first and the second beatitudes are in place. The first two Beatitudes are the means to the third. No one can be meek without first seeing that they are poor in spirit until they first see that they are a vile sinner, until they first see their own total depravity and radical corruption, until they first see the self-deception within their own heart 
and so until we've come to see this in ourselves, looking into the mirror of the Word of God and into the law of God and seeing my own heart and my own soul, until we declare spiritual bankruptcy, we will never be meek. Proud people are never meek. The second step is the second beatitude. If we are to arrive at the third beatitude, that path takes us through the second beatitude as well. And the second beatitude affirms, as we looked at last time together, that it is not enough merely to recognize my poverty in spirit. It is not enough just to tip my hat to that, check a box in agreement. It must have an effect on me if I am to be truly meek. I must come to a point where I am devastated by this right diagnosis of my heart. I must come to the point where I mourn over my sin, where there is an upheaval within my soul, where this affects me because I see who I am and what I am before a holy God in heaven. My eyes must become as a fountain of tears. My heart must be plowed up as with the steel plow of conviction of sin. And there is a brokenness on the inside. Until we are at this point, we will never be meek. We will be merely orthodox. We will be merely right and sound doctrine. But I would remind all of us that the devils believe and they tremble. They say God is one. The ultimate statement of orthodoxy, God is one. James says you do well. The devils also believe and shudder. There must be more than orthodoxy and correctness and rightness about our doctrine. The realities of this must tear us up on the inside where there is mourning and weeping over our sin. It is true as we enter into the kingdom and it must be true as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think we should become more callous towards sin as we grow closer to the Savior? Or should we be more sensitive and responsive towards sin? Well, the answer is the latter. The means to meekness is, one, to see your spiritual poverty, and two, to weep and mourn over your sin. That leads then to third, a place of self-denial. We smite our breast and we surrender our lives to God. Next, number five, I want you to see the manifestation of meekness. What does this look like? What would this look like in my life for me to be truly meek? And the Bible does not leave us to guess. I don't have to philosophize philosophize with you this morning. I can give you concrete areas in your life 
in which this meekness will be clearly seen. It will begin, number one, at home. Every believer must live with meekness in their own family. This requires the submission of each member of the family to what God has assigned for them in God's order in the family. Christian wives are to be in submission to their husbands with a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 5 state this very clearly, that all Christian wives are to be meek, and they are to be humble and submissive before their husbands. Christian husbands are also to be submissive in this sense. They are to be submissive to their role that God has assigned to them to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And Christ gave Himself. He died for the church. And every husband must humble himself to this divine order in the home and sacrificially give of himself again and again and again to his precious wife. Children are to be meek. Children are to be in submission to their parents. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3 tells us this. The text for husbands was Ephesians 5, 22 to 27. But children are to be in submission to their parents. They are to come under the authority of their parents. In fact, the word that children are to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is good. The word for obey is akuo, from which we derive the English word acoustics, which means you need to listen up. You need to pay attention. When your mother is speaking to you and she tells you to do something, you cannot pretend like you did not hear that or just continue to watch television. You're not listening. You're not obeying. You're not meek. To be meek for children means to obey first time in a submissive heart what the Lord requires. So it begins at home, this meekness. Second, it carries over into work. When we leave the home, we go to work. We go to the marketplace. We go to school. And every believer must be in submission at work. Christian employees are to be in submission to those who are in authority over them. Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 8, tell us this. If you're not in submission to your employer, please do not tell anyone you're a Christian. You are the worst advertiser. We cannot overcome it with radio programs and newspaper ads to try to get people to come to Christ Fellowship Church. We can't overcome that kind of devastating loss. And it begins with the attitude, not just the actions. Well, yeah, I did it. It begins with a servant's heart. This is so important that the text says that we are to render obedient service as to the Lord and not to men. Now, if that was Jesus Christ in the office right next to you and said, would you please sharpen these pencils, you would go do the whole box immediately. 
Because it was unto the Lord. Well, the one you are to serve, even if he's unconverted, is that employer, and you are to do it as unto the Lord. That is meekness. And Christian employers are also to be in submission to the role which they have been assigned by God. And they are to, to, uh, to know that they have a master in heaven who judges them impartially. And he is to be fair and just in what he pays and in what he expects and how he cares for those who work for him. Meekness carries over into the workplace and it is an acid test of the genuineness of our meekness. There's a third area and that area is here in the church. Every believer has a responsibility of meekness within the church. Each member is to be in submission to the leadership of the elders of the church. Everyone who joins this church is required to sign a church covenant, which is before God, my yes is yes and my no is no. And stated in that church covenant is submission to the elders, the spiritual direction and oversight of the elders. We need to understand we are not like every other Baptist church. We are not a congregational-led church. There are no votes taken in this church. It is not a church run by democracy. We are run by a plurality of elders. Even I am in submission to my fellow elders, and every other elder is in submission to the other elders. We make no decisions in this church without 100% agreement of all of the elders. Every elder is in submission to the other elders, and the entire flock is in submission to the plurality of all of the elders And this meekness is seen. No one in this church is allowed to assert their own will. No one in this church is allowed to go do their own thing unless it squares with the collective leadership of the elders. This is a mark of meekness. And the one who would rise up against that is the very opposite of meekness. Also, as we read the Scripture, the Bible says, in the church, it's not just to the elders, but it's to one another. That we are to consider the interests of others as more important than our own. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. So this meekness, if it's real, is to be seen in all of our lives in the life of this church. We all yield to the head of the church, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, as His rule is mediated through a plurality of godly men. There's a fourth area in which this meekness is to be seen in the life of believers, and it is in the nation or in society. Every believer lives as a citizen of this land of Mobile or Pensacola or Loosedale or Thomasville or wherever it is that you live, 
You're a citizen first of that city, second of the state of Alabama or of Mississippi or of Florida and of the United States as well. And there are elected officials who are over us. And we are to be meek. And we are to be humble and under the governmental authority over us in Romans 13 tells us, verses 4 and 6, that even these unconverted government officials are ministers of God and they are servants of God appointed for our good and we are to be meek and under their authority. And it begins with our attitude. Further, we are to be meek to the laws that they bring into jurisdiction. We are to be law-abiding, meek believers. And the only time we are allowed to step out from this is when they pit us against the authority of the Word of God. At that point, we must obey God and not men. But that is, at this point, a rare situation, we are to be meek and under the authority of those who are over us. That may change here soon. But at this point, we are to be law-abiding and under the authority of those over us. And all of this is built upon the foundation of our meekness before the Lord. I cannot be meek before the Lord if, I, if this is not real in my home, in my work, in my church, and in my nation, then I'm just saying, Lord, Lord, and there's no gospel reality in my life. This is the manifestation of meekness. Now finally, number six, I want you to see the majesty of meekness. What does meekness yield in my life? If I would humble myself before the Lord, what would it produce? What would it lead to? And in verse 5, on the front end and the back end of this verse, we see two evidences of the majesty of meekness. First, blessed. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the meek. That is the first fruit that comes to my life when I humble myself and die to self and surrender my life to Christ, it is then that the Lord opens the the vial of His, V-I-A-L, of His blessing and pours out the ointment of blessedness upon my life. And the more I humble myself, the more He blesses. To the extent that I resist, To that extent, there is not the fullest blessedness that should be on my life. Why? Well, 1 Peter 5, verse 5 says, The Lord resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And the more that I humble myself, the more liberal He is in dispensing His blessedness, which includes happiness blissfulness, joyfulness, contentment, the favor of God upon my life. I've told you before, the Lord will not bless rebels. 
Blessed are the gentle, for they... And I draw your attention to the word they. It's emphatic, meaning they and they alone. They and they only. No one else is blessed except those who are meek. Notice how this concludes. For they shall inherit the earth. I take this to have present meaning, present reality. It is a present tense verb. Blessed are right now the gentle. There is a present blessedness right now. It goes without saying that in the kingdom to come there will be this inheriting of the land, but even right now, this is all by grace. Notice it is the word inherit. We do not earn this. We do not merit this. We do not deserve this. It's simply because we're in the family. It's simply because we're in the kingdom. It's simply because we know the king. Because we've been grafted into his family and his kingdom. Therefore, we inherit. There is a passing down to us that comes because of our sonship in his family. Now, what does this mean, shall inherit the earth? Well, in the Old Testament, Israel's blessings were, for the most part, confined to the promised land. God was with them, and God did bless them in the wilderness, and God did help them when they were in Assyria and when they were in Babylon, but quite frankly, they were being disciplined at that time. And there was not the full expression. They saw the Father's frown, not His smile, during that season of chastening, from the Lord. It was in the promised land, that land that flowed with milk and honey, that land of whom God said, wherever you put your foot, I will give you that land. I will defeat your enemies. It was in the confinement of the land, the promised land, that God said, I will pour out the fullness of my blessing upon you as a people The hills will skip with joy. There will be abundant blessing. Now he says, he opens it up. And this goes beyond the land. Or we all need to move over there right now. I want this abundant blessing for you and for my family. Do we have to get on a jet and fly to the promised land and and go live? there to know God's blessing? Of course not. That's, the idea is preposterous. No. Jesus now opens this up and says, you shall inherit the earth. The fullness of the earth. Wherever you go, I send you into all the world. Not only Jerusalem, but to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world to all of the nations. And wherever you go, this blessing will be upon you and your cup will be filled to overflowing. The Lord's presence will be with you, but He will accompany you with the fullness of His presence. He said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. How good of God to not confine His blessing as He did to one nation, to a tiny parcel of land that is basically the size of Dallas-Fort Worth, about 35 miles one direction, about 
75 in the other, a tiny little sliver of land now. Wherever believers go and know the Lord and carry out the will of God, they shall inherit the earth. Not in the sense that now Manhattan becomes our real estate uh, acquisition. No, it's far greater than that. Now you can go anywhere on this earth and far better than owning it is to know His blessing, His attendant fullness, peace and joy and love and kindness and goodness. In fact, you could even find yourself in prison and know the blessedness of God. You could be strapped to the martyr's stake and know the blessedness of God. You could go to the hospital for surgery and know the blessedness of God. You could go to the graveside of a spouse and know the blessedness of God wherever you go, whatever you do. As we walk in humility, as we humble ourselves before the Lord, the Bible says He will exalt us. But if we exalt ourselves, He will humble us. As I conclude this message, I want to speak to two groups who are here today. I first want to speak to everyone who is inside the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, no one enters the kingdom except you be born again. So I want to ask you, have you been born again? Has there come a new life? Are you a new person in Christ? And if so, I want to say that this is the way we all must live as believers in Christ. Every step of the Christian life is a step of humility. In fact, a growth in grace is a growth downward in lowliness of mind and in submission yet more, yet more, yet more to the will of God. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6, You younger men... Likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, and He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves to all of us, to me, to you. Humble yourselves beneath the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, knowing He cares for you. This is God's Word for us today, we who are in the kingdom. It is for us to continue to humble ourselves to the will of God and to lower ourselves before Him, waiting for Him to exalt us at the proper time. We cannot assume that we have God's time schedule. We must lower ourselves and wait. Second, those of you who are yet outside the kingdom, those of you who have not yet been born again, we are so grateful that you're here. We want you to come and keep coming to hear the truth of these beatitudes and the gospel of Christ. And we want you to come into the kingdom. We are standing inside the kingdom And we are calling out to you 
outside the kingdom and we are saying to you, come in to the kingdom. Come into the family of God. We are calling out to you on Christ's behalf. And we are saying, humble yourself before the Lord. And He will exalt you in salvation. Turn from your sin, your self-reliance. Turn away from your self-centeredness. We have done this and we have found that God has removed our guilt and given us forgiveness. And now in the kingdom, the Son of God's love and grace is shining upon us. It is wonderful to be in the kingdom and to know the King and to be now the object of His care and His protection outside the kingdom. You're on your own. Outside the kingdom, the Son of God's grace is covered over by, by a dark cloud. There is darkness and there is misery and there is sorrow outside the kingdom. And there is no comfort and there is no forgiveness. Come into the kingdom. There is only one way to enter into the kingdom. It is through the narrow gate. There's only one gate that leads into the kingdom. It is the gate of Christ. And in order to enter through this gate, you must say, I recognize that I am poor in spirit. I must mourn over my sin. I must humble myself before the Lord and hunger and thirst for a righteousness that only He can give to me. I want you to know right now, this very moment, you are here because God wants you to hear this. Right now, the gates of paradise are swung wide open. And you may enter in right now under the sound of the truth. But you must turn away from your autonomy. Turn away from your independence. Turn away from your sin. Come to Christ. Come humble yourself to Christ. Believe upon Christ. Throw yourself upon the mercy of Christ. He is here today. He is in our midst. Call upon Him. In your heart of hearts say, Lord Jesus, receive me a sinner into Your kingdom. If you will say this to the Lord today in your heart of hearts, He will say, today you shall be with me in paradise. Today you will be in my kingdom in this earth. And one day when you die, He will take you to paradise above where He is preparing a house right now for all of His children, for all those who call upon His name. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That word whosoever is large enough to put its arms around everyone here today. There are those here who have heard me preach high doctrine on God's sovereignty. Hear your pastor. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believe upon Christ. 
If you die without Christ, you will have only yourself to blame. Your feeble excuses will evaporate in the last day. You won't be able to play philosophical, theological games with Christ at the judgment. He will point you to today. He will remind you that you came to Christ's fellowship and you heard this clear presentation of the truth. And He will remind you that you chose not to believe upon the offer of the Gospel. You have only yourself to blame. You will agree with the Lord in the last day that your excuses are nothing more than excuses. You will agree with the Lord that you deserve to go to hell. That the evidence is insurmountable. That your name is not in the Lamb's book of life. The books will be open and your entire life will be presented to you. There will be no room for philosophizing with God about mysteries. Believe upon Christ now. Don't keep putting this off. Today, this very moment, if you will call upon the Lord to save you, He will draw near to you. He will embrace you in His arms. And He will receive you as one of His sheep. Say, Jesus, save me. I come as a meek sinner, no longer kicking against the goads. I come to the end of myself. I surrender my life to You. Do this today. Do this, this very moment. And you will be blessed. And you will inherit the earth. Let us pray. Father, there are two groups here today. May those who are on the outside, may You make this known to them. May there be no none who are self-deceived here today. And those who know they're on the outside, press to their hearts with a sense of urgency that they would feel their need to come into the kingdom. Lord, it is free. It is by grace. It has been done at the cross. It is finished. Lord, May there be those that come by faith into the kingdom to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.